reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, then he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what the father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. May God's word shape and form. So I, re- I remember in junior high school, uh, you know, in junior high, you have those little mini relationships. <laughs> Somebody's friend comes to you in the playground and says, hey, so-and-so likes you. Do you want to go out with so-and-so? And, or you'll get a note, and it'll say, do you like me? I like you. Check this box, yes, if you like, the, if you like me, and check it. And so there's this one gal that I, I got asked on the bus, do you want to go out with her? And I said, sure, I'll, I'll do that. And, she, and then the gal said, uh, her friend said, how about, I think what would be nice is if you bought some roses for her. Do you want to check in this box and like give me $10 and I can get some roses for her? I said, okay, sure, sure, please, I'll, I'll do that. And the thing is, I was saying sure and yes to everything, right? And that's how relationships went for me back in the day. Do you like blue? Yes. Are you going to jump over there? Yes. Do you like me? Yes. Do you um, such and such? Yes. No, yes, no, yes. Everything was in agreement. And we all know, as we mature and get older, um, that deeper relationships are revolve around truth and revolve around trust, right? And truth and trust oftentimes come at a cost or oftentimes come with a little bit of pain or a little bit of work, a little bit of going uphill, right? And, you know, later on in my life, I realized not to trust relationships, friendships or dating relationships, 
where we never fight or we never have an argument, where it's always yes, yes, no, no. Because why? Because even though it's pleasant on the outside, underneath there's this passive, bubbling, you know, turmoil, ready to emerge, ready to rear its ugly head. And so uh, truth and trust are built oftentimes upon, upon healthy conflict. Us uh, communicating our identity, communicating our opinions, communicating our desires and longings. And truth sometimes hurts. Can I get an amen to that? Truth hurts. Truth pushes against the status quo, amen? Put, truth isn't always agreeing with the culture around us. Truth doesn't always agree with the status quo, with the way things are. Sometimes truth is the voice of the prophet, which is the not so popular voice, which is the voice that gets killed in scripture. Truth oftentimes hurts and involves conflict. And so if you can hit the next slide, um, just a little bit of context for our passage here in Matthew, um, just setting the stage, the atmosphere. Jesus has just, at the top of the chapter, uh, chapter 21 of Matthew, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem like a great king. Right? And we know this um, during Easter time, that Sunday before Easter is what? Palm Sunday, right? So sometimes in worship, you'll have the kids waving their palm branches. And this is to reenact, to relive this story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. And he's entering Jerusalem in triumph, on a, seated on a donkey with a colt next to him. And people are laying down their palms branches down on his path and laying down their cloaks and their robes and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Right? This is the king. And there's a stir, right? There's a stir throughout the city of Jerusalem. Who is this person? Who is this Jesus, this king? Is he the coming Messiah? Is he the one that those prophets in the scriptures foretold that will come and save us? Who is this? And so there's an excitement. And people feel like, oh, Jesus is a very important person. Jesus is someone big. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is someone who can change our lives, who can make things different, right? And part of that excitement is because people want change, right? People want their lives different. Somehow, they're not getting what they desire within uh, the temple system or within the religious system of the day. And they're longing for something more. And I love the worship uh, song that we sang, um, saying that the love of God is measureless. Right? Or something like, to, to tell the story of the love of God, you would empty the oceans. Just that image is this humongous, enormous, measureless. And the love of God can't be contained in the walls of a temple, in the walls of a church. It can't be contained even in this neighborhood, in this city. It can't be contained in a box, right? 
What represents love in a marriage relationship? What's the symbol of love? Anyone? Anyone? A ring, right? So, I don't know where my wife is. <laughs> I always lose it. You'll, you'll find, I'm married, okay? Sorry for those of you out there. <laughs> but I'm married. Um, but I seldom wear it because I play a lot of sports and my ring is too tight. I think my fingers have gotten fatter. And so it's like very uncomfortable. So I just take it off and I leave it on a shelf or somewhere and I forget where it is. So I never wear my ring. Um, maybe I'll put it on a necklace someday and just wear the necklace. But that symbolizes my commitment, my love with my wife Janice, right? It's a circle, it's eternal, symbolizes eternity, it's a commitment, and it's our love. But is that symbol the love between us? Is it the actual love, right? If I was lacking love and affirmation and encouragement and partnership from my wife, maybe she went on a trip, so I would just go to my ring and say, Oh, love me, Ring. Love me. This is the love of my wife. This is my marriage. Right? It wouldn't work. Right? It's just a symbol. It doesn't replace actually talking with my wife or embracing my wife or partnering with my wife or hearing her words of encouragement like, You're such a great husband. You're the best husband and father in the whole world. Ah, yes, yes. A ring can never do that. A ring could never do that for me. It's just a symbol. But it serves the purpose of representing that love and that commitment. Are you with me? And this is what Jesus is feeling and doing when he walks into the temple. So he enters into Jerusalem. And then he comes into the temple where the religious leaders are, the center of the culture and society in Jerusalem. And he overturns tables, right? And he chases, he chases the merchants out. Because in the temple are tables and merchants, people who are selling uh, doves and other types of animals uh, to be used for sacrifice. Because it was in the law that people would have to offer animal sacrifices to God as a, as a, as a form of sacrifice an atonement for sins. It's written in the law. But what these were, people were doing in the temple were creating a system, right, where they were profiting off of the need of people to make sacrifices. So people would come from long, from miles and miles, from other lands into Jerusalem to make their pilgrimage um, to make sacrifices. They're not going to carry a goat 500 miles to Jerusalem. Right? So they would go to the temple and they would have to buy these animal sacrifices to give sacrifice. And people were making money off of this. They were raising the prices. Right? They, were, they were profiting off of the need for people to worship. And what does this do? This creates a system, an unjust system, right? Where God's love is enormous and vast and can reach every single person and overwhelm the sinner's heart into repentance and humility. Where God is someone who wants all his people to have access to his love, to his people, to his temple, right? For all the nations to come and worship him. And what Jesus quotes 
later is, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. That is God's desire that all nations would come and pray and have access. This access was being limited and being cut off, right, by people who wanted to make a buck. And this is what upset Jesus. And I said before when I started off that truth hurts, right? Truth steps into conflict. This is what Jesus, and you're like, Jesus, isn't Jesus the Jesus who carries those pictures where he carries the lamb on his shoulders, right? Gentle Jesus, hippie Jesus, loving Jesus. But this Jesus is angry and he's turning things over. He's throwing people, he's putting people in headlocks and like chasing them out and kicking them. He's taking money trays and dumping it all over. He's actually trashing the temple. If I were to take the stand and just throw it, right, and hit someone on the head, right, you'd be like, angry, right? That pastor is an angry pastor. That's inappropriate, right? It would disturb our sense of peace and, like, calm. And Jesus definitely does this. But what Jesus is doing is protesting this injustice, this unjust system, this temple system that's become, that was a symbol or a wineskin for God's love to go out for people to worship God. But that symbol has become the end of itself, in of itself. And, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the elders are being like, it's about the ring, my precious, right? It's this, and they've forgotten this. Are you with me? They worship the thing, and they forgot about God and God's love. And the city, all along, all this while, the city is in a stir. Jesus. Who is this Jesus? And after Jesus actually throws people out of the temple, he has a healing service. It says people came into the temple and were healed by Jesus. And Jesus touched them, right, and healed maladies that they had suffered from for years, for most of their lives. There was a healing service right up in the temple, right? And someone who hadn't been in the temple for a while might have walked in and been like, this is not my father's church. <laughs> this is not my father's temple. Something's going on here. The whole city is in a stir. And it says, even though people were worshiping and in awe of God and the power of God and God's love, it says in verse 15 of Matthew 21 that the chief priests and the elders were indignant. Like, what does it take for you to be indignant when something clearly good is happening around you? What does that mean about your heart? And so they come, they're indignant, they're angry, they're upset. This is not the way things are meant to be. This is not the way you set up shop. This is not how we act in the temple, Jesus. You don't do these things. You're causing disruption. And they come and challenge it. They ask, by what authority do you do these things? 
by what authority? And this is actually the first of five challenges we'll see in the next few chapters of Matthew. Five challenges that the religious leaders um, give, uh, challenges that they give to Jesus' authority. By what authority? And Jesus gets into the con. Okay, I'll play along. And he says, right, by what authority did John the Baptist baptize or do these things? Is that correct? What authority does he do these things? Did he do these things? And if, this is a trick, right? Because if the, the religious leaders really felt that John the Baptist was from God, they'd be like, from God. But what they're mostly interested in is how the crowd, they'll be perceived by the crowd, or how, how they'll be perceived for what kind of, what idea they hold, right? So they're worried about the crowd. That they say, oh, John the Baptist, he wasn't from God. He didn't do those things from God. The people would be in an uproar, right? They'd protest, and they'd be in trouble. They'd fear for their lives. But if they say, oh, it did come from God, they're afraid of Jesus' response, then, uh, then why don't you believe? Why didn't you believe in him? Right? And so Jesus sets this up, because Jesus knows they're not really interested in the authority of God or the power of God. Right? They're interested in power right? and influence and popularity. And those things are different. Authority and power in the sense of like, I have power in this room because of my voice, right? Those two things are different. Does that make sense? And so Jesus catches them and they, they kind of left speechless. And then he goes on and tells a parable, a parable of two brothers. And you see that Jesus tells a lot of parables about brothers and two brothers. And he uses these kind of parables about brothers to describe two different groups of the people of Israel. Right? That the, those who are responsible for the spiritual welfare of the people of God, right? the leaders. And then those who are the quote-unquote, the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, etc., etc. Those who, in the temple system, according to the religious leaders, are outcasts are supposed to be on the outside, are unclean. And Jesus tells the story, and the story basically flips the script. He turns uh, the status quo and the expectation of roles and who's in and who's out upside down, saying, here are two brothers. And dad comes and says to the first brother, come and work in my field. Come and work with me. And the brother says, no. I don't want to, right? Straight up, I don't feel like it, so I'm not gonna. Feels like me and my, my interactions between me and my son. Isaiah, will you do this? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> the second son comes, and the father says, come and work with me. Your older brother, you don't wanna do it. Okay, dad, I'll do it. I'll clean up my room. I'll go, right? Fold my laundry, but he never did it. He said he would, he never did it. But then the first son ends up thinking about things and saying, you know, I should honor my father. I should respect him. 
I should, I should go and work. And even though he initially said no, he went and worked. And Jesus turns this question onto the Pharisees. Who is justified? Who is good? Who is the good son? And the Pharisees clearly the first son. Because even though he said no with his lips, and with his actions, he actually did it. What was asked. And the, the second son, even though with his lips, he paid lip service, he said, yes, I'll do it. I'll be the obedient son. With his actions, he rebelled. And so what Jesus, through the story, what Jesus is interested in is the heart, right? Is the truth. Not lip service, not some passive aggressive, okay, right? He's interested in the heart and, and what lies in the heart. And I was always told coming up in leadership that always trust the reluctant leader. Always trust the reluctant leader. And don't trust the eager leader. Right? And I'm like, what does that mean? What does that mean? And I think I come to understand it. Right? The reluctant leader, the person that says, oh, no, I don't want to do it. Oh, I don't have time. Or, oh, not me. Choose someone else. I think they at least are counting the cost, right? They at least know what it takes to lead. And they at least are people of integrity, right? Because they know if I can't do it, then I'm not going to say I'm going to do it, right? And they are not going to lead because they want to be popular or they want to like get the accolades. They're just going to lead because they're pushed into it, essentially. Or something compels them and convicts them to lead. And so this, this is always, this test has always served me well, like the reluctant leader. And that's why I'll chase down the reluctant leaders. Like, come on! Because when that person says yes, they're there. Does that make sense? And the person is always like, I'll do it, I'll do it, and then let me do it. I'll lead, give me this, give me this, let me do it. It's like, okay, yes, that's good. But will you be there when things get hard? Will you be, be there next week? And, and so I think this is what Jesus is getting at, is I'm interested in what you truly feel, right? I'm interested in the heart. I'm not interested on surface things. I'm not interested in just symbols, external symbols. I'm interested in the spirit of things. And for the temple, I'm not interested in the beauty of the temple. I'm not interested in the walls and all the decor and all of the things that you have going on outside of the temple. I'm interested in the temple as a holy place of God where people can come and experience God's grace and mercy and love and approach God, the God of glory, amen. And this is where my authority comes from. My authority comes from God. And you know what? You will see this authority when in a week I'm executed and I come to life in three days. That will be the authority. Amen. Are you with me, church? Amen. Protest. Jesus occupied the temple. It's very interesting. 
right? Um, that Jesus was angry. It's very interesting to me that Jesus pushed against the status quo. It's very interesting to me that Jesus was disruptive, right? In many ways, we can understand this if we were to contextualize it to our current state, the United States, right? It's, it's an interesting time. Would you agree? It's a time where there's a lot of conflict. It's a time where there's a lot of upheaval, right? And part of that, we can say we have a new president, and that's caused like things, not new things, right? It's caused the things that we've been glossing over perhaps to rise up, right? To rise up because he says it like it is and we don't like it, right? And, and what he says like, disrupts people. And um, take for instance, the NFL. Right. In NFL, you've had a lot of players. Uh, it started with Colin Ka Kaepernick. You know, he um, was taking into account a lot of the, the, the shootings that occurred at the hands of policemen, of black men. And so he decided, oh, I have a platform because I'm an NFL player. And what, what other time are millions of people watching? And I feel very strongly about the injustices in our country, especially towards black men, right? And it's difficult for me to just give lip service to our country and say, our country is so great, or to sing the national anthem, or to bow, or to, you know, kind of pay homage to the flag, when for you, it might be a great, the country's going great, it's so great. For me, it's not going great at all. So how can we sing together unless I say something? And so he kneeled, he sat during the national anthem. And this, each week, like it got bigger and bigger. And like the conflict, it, 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 uh, it made things kind of the different factions in our country and the different feelings that people have rise up. Right? And conflict was stirred up. On one side, people were like, how dare you disrespect the flag? The flag, right? All the men and women who served in the military for that flag and gave their lives for that flag, you're disrespecting them. Early on, Colin Kaepernick had written like, no, this, this isn't about the military. I respect the military. I respect, respect what they've done, right? What we're talking about is what did those military give up their lives, right, and serve for? Was it for the flag or was it for the freedom that I am now speaking out for for my brothers who are in pain? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And I want people to listen. And I think our natural tendency is to want protest to go away. It's messy, right? It sucks, especially in the church, right? Don't shh, right? Silence the voice of the prophet, right? You're, you're causing a stir. 
just let things, we've always done things this way. We've always had the call to worship right here, or we've always spent our money over there, or we've always had this event every year. Be quiet, don't cause a stir. But if we look at the Gospels, was Jesus someone who was quiet? No, when he saw that the temple wasn't a place that it was supposed to be, he raged, right? He turned everything upside down. And one has to wonder, as Christians, on what side of things should we be as followers of Jesus? People who just, oh, the status quo, don't cause any waves, right? Or people who see oppression and injustice or love being cut off, speaking out against that and saying, no, no, advocating for different people, championing, championing for people, right? Having a heart for the poor, the oppressed, those who are mistreated, those who are exploited. I think that's, when I read the gospel, as a pastor of the gospel and the word, I can't be faithful to that without saying, I think Jesus is on the side of protest, right? Championing, championing for the poor, speaking out against injustice. Amen? Are you with me, church? Amen. Yep. And we have to be careful that we are not taking our symbols of the temple, our symbols of the people of God, our symbols of love like that ring, right? My wife is over there saying, pay attention to me. I'm like, oh, my marriage ring. Oh, it's so sweet when the person is right there. And sometimes we, if we just translate temple to church, just for a minute, sometimes we take the church and we're so busy doing this, oh, church, right? Oh, look at this lectern. I love this mic. I can stand far away. It's non-directional. It can pick up my voice. Right? I can stand over here. It can pick up my voice. It's amazing. And my choir mics can't wait to use it. We can do skits and stuff. It's so awesome. I can't wait to use this podium. Oh, right? So beautiful. Recess lighting and track lighting. We don't have pews. We don't have to set up chairs anymore. It's so awesome. And we spend all of our time like, oh, oh, let's preserve this. It's so good, the church, the church, the church. And people are outside of our doors saying, help me, feed me. I need love, I need community. Amen? Amen. Forget this. If that's what it's about, forget it. Trash it, stomp on it, protest it. Tear it apart so that we can go out here and be the church to people who are hungering and thirsting after the gospel. We are the church. And this is what Jesus was talking about. This, the kingdom of God is like this. And I've come to usher in the kingdom of God. Right? If you're new to Renew and our Renew Core need a reminder. Our vision as Renew is to be transformed by God or renewed by God for the renewal of our neighborhoods. We are renewed by God for the renewal of our neighborhoods. 
Basically, that means, right, God has given us so much. And he's continuing to give us so much. And because we've given, been given much, we can't help but turn and give away a lot and much to other people. Because the love of God is measureless. It's boundless. It doesn't run out. And we trust that God, if he's given it to us once, he's going to give it to us twice and three times. And we're so grateful. And we've received the goodness of God. And we can just give it away. We can just give it and give it and give it and give it away. Just like the artesian well down the street. The water just keeps coming and coming and coming. Are you with me, church? So if you can hit the next slide. This is our the Renewed Dream, and you can find this on our website. And uh, we hope to put it on our literature and kind of embed it in each of our hearts. But we are renewed by God for the renewal of our neighborhood. The renewed dream is for people in North Linwood and beyond to experience the grace and mercy of God and to be transformed as images of God. We believe we are given to in order to give away. And so we will endeavor to love and serve our neighbors in tangible ways. Right? And it's so tempting for me as a pastor and the clock is ticking in a lot of ways, to succeed. And sometimes success is defined by, I hope that these pews are filled up, right? But that's not the starting point, right? The point, the bottom line isn't to fill the pews. The bottom line for us is to live out our mission and our vision, amen? amen. And I believe when we live out our mission and vision, that other stuff will come, right? People can't help but be drawn to something beautiful. People can't help but be drawn to truth and love and mercy. People can't help but be drawn to neighbors who are good neighbors. So I believe as we live out our vision faithfully and in prayer, God will bless this place, the worship. God will fill the place. Right? But that's not the end. We start from here, from who God is. Next slide. And here are some of our values. We are relational, an authentic community where everyone belongs. Right? We reach out, we talk to people, we communicate, we invite people, we're hospitable. We don't push people out, we welcome people in. Secondly, we're passionate about justice and mercy with a heart for the marginalized, refugee, and immigrant. Just like God had a heart in the scriptures for the outsider, the alien, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, we too share that heart. We want to share that heart uh, with compassion. Thirdly, we want to be a community that values diversity we desire to be a multi-ethnic, intergenerational, and we encourage the diversity of backgrounds within our leaderships, leadership and up and down our, our church, our organization. 
And so that's who, that's what we value, and this is what we're striving to embody as a group. Um, and I think the hope is that we're in line with who Jesus was, and what Jesus was saying. This is my church, right? It's a house of prayer for all nations. This is what I want it to be. And he's calling us to be that church. Let's pray.